0: Welcome to another episode of Beethoven Walks Into a Bar, the Kansas City Symphony's brand new podcast. This is our second episode, which is a good sign because we did not get canceled after the first one. I'm Jason Sieber. I'm the associate conductor of the Kansas City Symphony.
1: I'm Mike Gordon. I'm the principal flute of the Kansas City Symphony.
2: And I'm Stephanie Brimhall. I am the education manager with the Kansas City Symphony.
1: We're coming to you this week from
0: each of our individual homes with the new stay-at-home order here in Kansas City. And you know, musicians often find themselves hanging out together at a bar after work. What do we talk about? Well, of course, it's music. Each week we're going to be featuring an interesting living composer. We're going to tell you some fun stories about making music and we'll give you a seat right next to us here at our favorite watering hole. Now, last week on our first episode, we talked about Beethoven walking into a bar, of course. What would he drink? I think Stephanie you speculated he'd be drinking some wine. Yep. Mike you said Jaeger bombs, I Definitely. believe. Definitely. And I thought bourbon, but we're, you know, we'll never really know for sure, but it would be fun of course to sit down with Beethoven in a bar, have a few drinks, and I wonder what the conversation would be. Well, this week, composer Adam Schoenberg walks into a bar.
1: That's right. Uh, Adam Schoenberg is uh, a great friend of the Kansas City Symphony, and a, uh, a personal friend of mine, I'm proud to say, but he is a uh, really thriving young composer in the United States. He he studied with Robert Biedzer and uh, the more well-known, probably, uh, John Corigliano. His music's been played by orchestras all over the U.S., um, He's done film compositions as well. I've played some of his uh, chamber music. I mean, really just a very uh, uh, varied and, and versatile composer and a terrific guy. And I'm really looking forward to uh, hearing what he likes to drink, among other things, uh, this week.
0: Well, we did ask Adam some questions in advance of today's taping. Um, like I said, last week we speculated what Beethoven's favorite drink might be. We are actually able to ask Adam what is his favorite drink is stephanie what did he say
2: so i mean the texas girl in me was very excited to hear this answer um adam's favorite drink right now he's been enjoying it for many years is añejo tequila served neat mm. right and what i loved about his answer so he listed some different types of uh, brands that he enjoyed but i love that on his list was the kirkland brand because mm. i uh, man i'm a mom I spend a lot of time at Costco, and when I can get liquor at Costco, uh, you better believe I have a lot of it in my freezer right now.
1: <laughs> we we get that same tequila. It's pretty good. Is it?
0: It is really yeah. good. Yeah. It makes a, a mean uh, margarita as well. There you go. Um, where would he go to have this drink, especially once you know this whole stay-at-home order is over? Where does Adam plan on going to get his first new drink of tequila?
2: So... He says that he would go to a friend's house, which I'm going to be honest, I don't know. I, I kind of need to be out of the house right now. So I'm going to a bar, but but Adam really wants to get to a friend's house and social socialize with somebody not through a screen.
0: Oh, we can't all wait to be there. That's for sure. Uh, Mike, where where is Adam now, and what, what is he working on compositionally, do you know?
1: So, uh, yeah, Adam is uh, right now at his home in Los Angeles, California, at least that's what he tells us, with his uh, wife and his two kids, and uh, he's working on a really interesting project right now, actually, a, a concerto for orchestra, and um, some of you may be familiar with, with other works that are uh, concertos for orchestra. Uh, particularly the the Bartok Concerto for Orchestra is maybe the most famous, and um, you know, it's just a, it's a form that developed in the early 20th century that is really meant to feature uh, all the different uh, instrumental soloists in the orchestra. Right. And
0: you know, my favorite question, I think, that we're asking each of these composers that we're going to feature each week is this, and this kind of ties in with the whole theme of the podcast obviously we can't ask beethoven any questions and not only what would he drink but you know how does he compose what are some of the things that inspire him etc but we are asking each of our composers what is the one question that they would ask beethoven if they could ask one thing of him and what did adam say
1: well adam adam had a really interesting question because of course um as as he pointed out I'll, i'll read you exactly what he said in a second um He pointed out that the composers often don't get to choose exactly what they they compose. So he says, uh, wow, dearest Ludwig, what would be your dream project to compose if we could magically bring you back today and you were given complete and total freedom? As the majority of us composers exclusively work by way of commissions, the commissions themselves almost always have parameters, i.e. overall duration, instrumentation, potential theme, etc., I'm always curious to know what composers would write if they were given the opportunity to compose any type of piece for any type of ensemble with any type of technological backing.
0: Huh. I bet that Beethoven would definitely make use of the technology, maybe incorporate some electronic sounds in his, in, in, in his compositions, who knows. But I, that would be exciting to see what he would write now. If you yeah, were alive it's, today.
1: It's so interesting. There's so many more um, there's so much more variety and so much more freedom of forms, I think, in in new music. I mean, composers are constantly um, you know, reinventing the shapes of music. I mean, occasionally uh, a, a modern composer will write something like a symphony or an overture or, you know, something traditional like that. But more often than not they don't. Um, It would also be really cool to see Beethoven interact with computers.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's true. I wonder if he would use Finale or Sibelius, you know, one of the compositional programs that a lot of composers use now, or if he'd still write by hand every note. It'd be interesting to see.
1: Adam actually did a really uh, neat presentation here in Kansas City once where he He had a a computer set up on stage and he was doing a little talk about how he composes and it's just amazing to watch a professional composer manipulate music around the screen of a, a computer and actually create it uh in front of you it's an amazing process and to think you know all of this music uh that that we know from beethoven and you know really until very recently they couldn't do that yeah
2: Talking about Adam's time here too, he you know when he was here, uh, he was actually the composer in residence for a season here in Kansas City, and um, as part of that, he worked with a group of students. We had a, a handful of students who were selected to be part of this um, young composers institute, and they got to really be part of this firsthand with him and watch him work and and ask him questions. And they had lessons through Skype monthly. Um, they got to put together their own compositions. And then at the end of the season, um, they they had their pieces performed by members of the orchestra. Mike, I think you were, you were a part of a couple of those, I think. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I think so, if I remember correctly. That was such a cool project. Yeah, that's
0: great. And you know, we play so much new music at the Kansas City Symphony. There's rarely a classical week that doesn't have a piece by a living composer. And I think it's one of the great things that we do here at the symphony by featuring a lot of really wonderful composers, especially people like Adam Schoenberg. And Mike, of course, you're, you're on the front lines. You're playing these pieces each week. And as we know, it's one thing to play Beethoven's Fourth Symphony, a piece that you've played probably a dozen times in your life. But when you have a brand new piece, especially if it's going to be a world premiere, which is always exciting, talk to us a little bit about how you, as a musician, Approach of a new piece where there's no recording of it. There's no idea how the rest of how your part's going to fit with the rest of the orchestra. Do you approach a brand new piece like that completely differently than standard repertoire?
1: Yeah, it is a lot different actually, uh, because you know when we play uh, Beethoven or something or Mozart or or you know really anything by a composer uh, whom we know well. Even if it's a piece that I haven't played before, there's a whole context and there's an expectation of how Beethoven's music is played. When you play music by a new composer, very often that expectation is there. With Adam, uh, I've played a lot of his music, so now if I approach a new piece of his, you know I can interpret it uh, with the context of the other music of his that I know. But most people probably that play his music don't have that opportunity
0: right and i always think it's cool when we are doing a brand new piece that very first rehearsal is so interesting always because people you know there's always some stopping and starting and and people figuring things out even as a conductor if you're conducting a a brand new piece you can go through it in your head you can study it all you want you can sit at the piano and hash it all out but you really don't know what it's going to sound like until that first rehearsal including the composer themselves And many times when we do world premieres at the symphony, it's always great if we're able to have the composer there from the very first rehearsal throughout the whole week and to see the piece kind of evolve. And a lot of composers end up making changes on the spot for things that they thought might work, but they don't quite work the way they originally intended. And they might change who plays something or the dynamics of something to help with the balance. It's always kind of cool to have the composer right there as you rehearse their piece.
2: Well, that's a question I had for for Jason, actually, is, you know, as a conductor, I mean, I think there are a lot of people, um, I've heard a lot of conductors say, you know, Beethoven's not here, we can't ask him, we just have to assume. What is it like when the composer is right there sitting either with you on stage or out in the audience, and you can actually turn around and say, hey, man, like, what did you mean by this? Or, you know, did you really want this accidental? Or do you really want this dynamic marking?
0: It's always great and and you know those questions come from the musicians as well as we're rehearsing. They'll say, "Am I really supposed to have an A sharp in this measure or something like that?" And it is really great to be able to get that immediate feedback. And I also think it's cool to always see the collaboration between the conductor and the composer on the spot. And sometimes uh, I'll suggest something as a conductor and the composer will say, "No, I really did intend it this way and I really think it works." And other times you're able to change their mind about something, and vice versa. Um, So being able to do that organically is always a really cool process, I think.
1: One of the uh, most fun experiences I had with a new piece of music was many, many years ago, I was playing uh, in this brand new, or at the time it was brand new, uh, opera of Osvaldo Golioff. And literally, the ink was drying in rehearsal. And every day we'd come into rehearsal, and somebody's solo had moved from one instrument to another. So I'd be playing something one day, and next thing I knew, I came in, and it was an English horn part or vice versa. Uh, And it was actually such a cool collaborative process that you can't have with Beethoven. The ink's been dry for a little while now.
0: That actually reminds me of a story. You know, we recently performed Bartok's Concerto for Orchestra. We're just talking about Adam working on a new concerto for orchestra. And at the first rehearsals with the Boston Symphony, Um, the principal trumpet player at the time, had some piccolo cues in his part. uh, Extremely high, it would have been, on the trumpet. And he was sitting there warming up before rehearsal, playing these piccolo cues, thinking it meant piccolo trumpet and that it was actually (laughs) a part and not cues. So he's sitting there practicing, warming up on this really difficult part. And Bartok heard him and loved it and actually added the trumpet to the woodwinds who play this little lick in the final movement. And and now it's one of the most magical moments, I think, in the whole piece. So that's just another perfect example of how a composer, if they're able to be present at the rehearsal process, can really make some cool changes and and the piece is never really finished.
2: That's awesome. So the composers that we've talked about so far have all been um, very successful. They've had a lot of works that have lasted well beyond their years, right? But that's not always the case with all music. And I, I wonder how... How do you know what music is going to still be played in the future? Like, how do you know it's what you're playing is going to last?
0: That's right. You never really know, I guess, w- during your lifetime as a composer, whether your music is going to continue to be played after you've left. Um, but of course, Beethoven, Brahms, they definitely had to have known, okay, I'm pretty good at this. <laughs> People are going to be playing my music for years. But there are times where maybe a composer is not quite as successful, And maybe they have a hit during their lifetime, or maybe they don't. Um, But there are definitely one-hit wonders in the classical music world, in the orchestra world, just like there is in the pop world. And uh, I actually um, put together a little quiz for you two to see how well you know your pop one-hit wonders and your classical one-hit wonders. Um, So let's play a little game here. I'm going to tell you the artist, and by the way, these all come from the VH1 Top 100 one-hit wonders of all time. And all the tunes that we're going to talk about made the top 10 of that top 100. So these are very recognizable one-hit wonders. You should know these. Let's start kind of easy. I'll give you the artist and you tell me their one-hit. Here we go. Vanilla Ice. Oh, oh,
2: oh, 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 oh! I got it. It's uh, Stephanie. Um, Ice Ice Baby.
0: Ice Ice Baby, that is correct. Check out the hook <laughs> while my DJ revolves it.
2: That's right. You know what? I have a funny story about vanilla ice because now I cannot verify 100% if this is true or not, but my babysitter growing up, because Robbie Van Winkle grew up in Dallas. This is true. Well, I know that. He is vanilla ice, by the way. He dated my babysitter growing up.
0: No way. Wow. Yes, I know. Wow. I can't, I can't is-
2: 100% prove that, but that's what she told me.
0: Let's take it as, as fact. I think it's true. Why would you
2: make
1: that up?
0: <laughs> yeah. No one's going to make that up, right? Okay, next one. Here we go. Tony Basil. Who is that? Not Tony Rosemary. Not Tony Oregano. Tony Basil.
2: What was I, I her big hit? I don't know that is. Oh, it's a her. Hey,
0: Mickey, you're so fine. You're so fine. You blow my name. Oh, hey, Mickey. Wow. Okay. Mickey, of course. Okay, okay. next one. You Good guys one. are uh, one for two. One Good for one. two. Here's the next one. Los Del Rio. Oh, got it. Stephanie? Macarena. Hey, Macarena! Very nice. good. Goodness. Okay,
1: that brings back here's the one from the '80s. From my teens.
0: <laughs> here's one from the '80s. Ah ha!
1: Take
2: on me.
0: Good. Okay, last one from the pop world. This is a little tricky, I think. Dexy's Midnight Runners.
2: Ooh! Oh, I know this. What is it? I'm I'm gonna know it the second you tell me what it is.
1: I'm just going to leave and go get a sandwich while you guys figure this out. I obviously don't know. It is. I'm so
2: excited.
0: Come on, Eileen. Yes. You know okay. that tune.
1: Yes, yes. Yes. That's a big hit. That
0: was a big hit. I didn't hit. know that. Okay. Okay. Those Those are the pop ones. Let's move to the classical world now. We were supposed to actually be giving a concert tonight, a classics uncourt concert called One Hit Wonders. And it had on it a bunch of one-hit wonders from the orchestral world. Now, some of these composers have more than one piece that we play, but they're really known for one big hit. So I'm going to give you the tune, and you tell me the name of the piece and the composer. Here's the first one. We'll start a little easy. Here we go.
1: Ooh, ooh, ooh. Who knows that one?
2: Mike knows it. I finally know one.
1: Mike, what is it? It's Sorcerer's Apprentice by Dukas. That
0: is correct. Ding, ding, ding. The French composer Dukas, Sorcerer's Apprentice. He also wrote a really great brass fanfare, La Paris, that I suggest you check out as well if you don't know that one. But he's really only known for that one big hit, which of course was in Fantasia and various other things. All right. How about this one? Who knows?
2: Okay, I'm gonna guess because I'm either I'm gonna say the wrong last name. It's either okay. Kachaturian or Kabalevsky.
0: <laughs> you gotta pick one. You can phone a friend. You can uh, use a, use a lifeline. I'm, whatever you need to do here.
2: I'm using my lifeline, Mike. Who is it? It's Kachaturian. Oh, there we go. It is okay.
0: Kachaturian. Very good. It's the Sabre Dance by Kachaturian. He also wrote Spartacus. He wrote a great violin concerto masquerade, but he's really known. Everyone knows the Sabre Dance, of course. Okay, these are going to start getting a little trickier now. Uh, Another tune that we were supposed to play tonight goes like this.
2: Who knows? I think you've stumped stumped us both, I think. (laughs) Yes! I'm going to blame your singing.
0: (laughs) That is... Espana by Chabrier, and uh, yes. I thought it was pretty clear. Yeah, that's that's uh, Chabrier of I... another great French composer, but uh, that is a piece, of course, influenced by Spanish culture, that's why it's called Espana.
1: Little known fact about the Chabrier, harpists practice that piece constantly because they have to play it for auditions. Mm-hmm. Fun fact that is very true about Espana,
0: that is very true. It is a very complex harp part in that piece. Okay, uh, moving on. Next one. Here we go.
2: I'm guessing. Stephanie. Stephanie. Okay, so I'm not going to tell you the name of the actual piece, but what I know it is, uh, as is um, from Madagascar, uh, Afro Circus.
0: Yeah. It is known as a circus tune. That's for sure. It's also been used by several circuses. That is not the title of it, though. What is the title, and who's the composer?
1: It's Entrance of the Gladiators. Oh. Yes! By? And I'm trying to think of the composer. Uh...
0: <laughs> oh, gosh. All right, Mike, what did you put down? You put Entrance of the Gladiators by Fusick. How much did you wager? Fusick, of course. Hopefully you didn't wager too much because you only got half the answer right. Okay, last but not least, this was one more piece we were supposed to play on our Encore concert tonight. boy
2: i have a question for mike yeah mike were you play were you supposed to play this concert
1: um why yes Stephanie, i was but uh so therefore you have not
2: been practicing your parts
1: well you see i i often we play a lot of music here at the kansas city symphony and i usually am not practicing my music until a little closer to the concert and The concert was canceled almost two weeks ago. So I never got around to picking up this music and preparing it. All right. Well, despite Mike's
0: excuses, you still have not given me an answer. Does anyone know what that tune was? It's a really well known tune. It's played all the time at weddings. 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 All right. I'll just tell you it was the Adagio by Albanoni. Broke composer. Now, I will also tell you that even though it is attributed to Albinoni, it actually, we believe, was composed by Albinoni's biographer, Giazzotto. And he at least finished the piece. It's possible that Albinoni wrote the main tune, the very beginning of it, but Giazzotto definitely finished it. It's been used in the movies Flashdance, the 1991 film The Doors, and most recently in Manchester by the Sea. Now, I have to say, you guys did much better at the pop tunes than the classical tunes, and that worries me a little bit. I think you all need to go home and study up, listen more, and practice.
2: Let's be clear. Stephanie did better at the pop stuff than Mike.
0: That's actually true. Yeah. That's actually true. Stephanie nailed the pop stuff. Mike, you need to listen to more pop music, that's for sure. Mike didn't
1: get out (laughs) much as a teenager. Mike (laughs) was locked in a closet playing the flute. Hmm.
2: So yeah, those were pieces that were going to be on our Classics Corked concert. But also this week, we were scheduled to do a Pops concert as well, a series of concerts with a an ABBA cover band, tribute band, right? With the orchestra. Yeah. And that's part of our pop series, which is pretty different than what you would consider a, a traditional symphony concert.
0: That's right. You know... This week, actually, we're supposed to do three different programs, and that's a pretty typical week for the symphony. We're either doing a classical week uh, where we have one program or maybe an opera or a ballet. Those are one-program weeks, but a lot of times we end up playing three, sometimes even four different programs in one week. We really have to be on top of our game, et cetera. And so a lot of times with the Pops concerts, we only get one rehearsal, and usually it's like two and a half hours long, and there's two hours worth of music. On that one rehearsal, so a lot of times we have to skip over a few sections, um, we might, if something repeats, we'll just not do the repeat, etc, and we literally have enough time to basically just run the music as opposed to a classical week where we're spending you know four, maybe even five rehearsals on a program and really um, polishing it up. But of course, we're able to do that because a lot of pops music is significantly easier for us as musicians than the classical weeks, don't you think, Mike?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that makes it easier is that the the featured artist is usually the, you know, the singer, it's most often a singer, occasionally an instrumentalist, and everything else is a bit more accompanimental. And in the original versions of most of these songs, there was not an orchestra. So often we're filling out, uh, you know, what would have been played by the band or the piano player or something like that.
0: Yeah, and... You know, a lot of times you just mentioned that what we're, what our role is basically in these pops concerts, and we can easily, if it's not done right, become sort of like a backup band to the star, whoever the the pop star is that we're working with or whatever. And what I've loved about the pops concerts that we've done most recently at the symphony is that as we do more and more of these, the people writing the arrangers that are, are writing the orchestra parts are getting more and more creative with the what what the orchestra's role is and it's not so much long notes and and backing up the artist but really collaborating with the artist and becoming a much more integral part of of these great charts.
1: Yeah, that's really true. Uh, a lot of the artists we get now have really outstanding arrangers that have that have made a true uh orchestra component uh of the of the artist's original songs. And um and then it's really really fun.
0: Yeah. And, you know, there's always a challenge with Pops concerts because a lot of times the artist themselves is, of course, miked. And we as orchestras are are not miked when we did give a typical concert. And, of course, you got to get a good balance. And to me, it's always tricky to make sure that the orchestra still sounds as acoustic and organic and natural as possible. So that's where the sound engineers, whether they're traveling with the artist or they're our own sound engineers that we use at the symphony, become really the heroes of a Pops concert to really make sure it comes across to the audience as beautiful and natural as possible. Now, we've had all sorts of great Pops artists um, joining us recently. Some of my favorites have been Lyle Lovett, um, Leslie Odom Jr., Melissa Etheridge. We've really worked with some really outstanding artists. Um, But some of them uh, come with interesting writers Stephanie and you get to where you sit in our offices you're right next to our manager of artist relations so she's the one that gets those writers what are some of the stories that you've heard some of the things that artists have requested when they come to Kansas City or anywhere
2: okay so so you're right uh I will preface this though Jason by saying that you know these artists are on tour all the time. They're on the road, they're away from their homes and they're away from their families and so they like to ask for things that are going to make them comfortable and happy and I love that. That's great and we are always super excited to provide all of those things. Um I mean, you know, we've been asked for things, you know, very specific like I only want Fiji water or I only want sugar-free Red Bull, don't you, know, you dare give me the sugar. Sugar-free. <laughs> um you know, things that's like Diet Pepsi, don't put a Diet Coke in there. I don't want a Diet Coke. I want only Diet Pepsi. Or I only want two bananas. Or, um, you know, we haven't had anybody yet who seriously asked this question, although Brian Busby, our our meteorologist here in Kansas City, joined us for a concert and gave me a fake writer one time <laughs> that included a bunch of stuff. Like, he only wanted um, green starbursts and... um you know, a lot of silly stuff that was completely unattainable. I had to, I had to transcribe his uh, um, contract into Yiddish for him. For example, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't really have to do it, but I think he got a, a kick out of it when I actually did it. Um,
0: that's great. So no, no one's asked for a camel, like a real live camel or something, to be in their dressing room or anything weird like that. I hope
2: no, but we have had one artist strange. in particular. I won't, I won't name names, but one artist in particular who decided that. They did not want to use our dressing rooms um so they they parked the tour bus in the loading dock and stayed on their tour bus but then had Whoa. to walk from the tour bus to backstage which is a long walk down that hall back there um yeah, to get to and from the stage right and one time um the the this person's eyelash glue wasn't quite dry. So they had to walk from the tour bus all the way back to the stage with their eyes closed the entire way <laughs> to, to wow. make sure their eyelashes stayed on, which is good.
0: Now, I would say that you just gave us a big clue by talking about the eyelashes. It must be a woman. But in the if it was an 80s rocker, it might have been a man. So Could have been. it's possible you didn't give their identity away. Speaking of cool. 80s
2: rockers, I mean, Michael Bolton was supposed to be here later. And I got to tell you, I was super excited about that concert.
0: That was going to be a fun one. I'm really sad that we're not able to work with Michael Bolton. Hopefully, we'll be able to work with him down the road.
2: Yeah.
1: I was disappointed about that, too. And we've been talking about having him ever since we had Kenny G here several years ago. And he, I think, is coming back next season. But uh He is. They, of course, toured together for a long time, and Kenny G was just amazing. But, you know, Stephanie, as you were telling uh, some funny stories about the writers uh, for our various artists, I had a thought about one guest artist, or perhaps I should say a group of them uh, that we had several years ago that I think is a funny story worth sharing. Do you recall when we had to have, I believe it was ducks for a show? Oh, yeah.
2: Yes, we had to have we did a magic show. We did a magic show and there were ducks and it was our production manager's job to go to a farm and get these ducks. And the ducks he brought the ducks back and the ducks lived in the dressing room for like the weekend and he had to come in like leave his family on like a Saturday morning and come in and like bathe the ducks and feed the ducks and Walk the ducks. Oh my God! <laughs> There's a clause in, in all of our um, our administrative uh, job descriptions at the very bottom. I'm sure it's in a lot of people's, but it says other duties as assigned, and that is one that we often bring up. That that was an other duty as assigned.
0: <laughs> wow. So the, so our dressing rooms are good enough for ducks, but they weren't good enough for that artist with the eyelashes.
2: Huh? Listen, the dressing rooms at the Kaufman Center for the Performing Arts are state of the art and tremendous so I don't know they
0: are they are indeed they are indeed well we're uh, getting to the last portion of today's episode where we like to recommend some listening it's so sad for us right now that we are not giving live performances for our wonderful Kansas City audiences but we know that you all love orchestral music so much and you want to get your fix and so we do have a few uh, recommendations for listening this week um, Mike, you also spoke to Adam about, first of all, about some of his recommendations. What are some of Adam's favorite recordings that he mentioned?
1: He had a couple uh, interesting ones. So he said, during this quarantine, I've been listening to Stevie Wonder's records again. Mm. Awesome. Excellent choice. As well as Alan Toussaint. Am I saying his name right? I don't know him. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I'm going to have to check that out since I don't know him. Uh, then in, uh, terms of classical, uh, music, he's been listening to Michael Tilson Thomas's, uh, recent release of Copeland Third Symphony, one of Adam's favorite pieces and mine too, uh, a recording with the San Francisco Symphony. And, uh, Adam also added that his favorite classical recording of all time, of course, is the album that uh we created together with him uh the kansas city symphony so i you know would be hard-pressed to argue with that and i remember when we recorded it was so exciting to not only get to record music that hadn't previously been recorded but uh to do this album with adam Uh, our friend, and it has on it uh, his American Symphony, Finding Rothko. And at the time, it was a new commission that we did with him called Picture Studies. Since we're talking about it, uh, I think it would be really interesting for people to know a little bit about our uh, recording process for that album we we didn't do it as a live recording uh which we've been doing more recently it was a what you'd call a studio session so we were in the hall we had mics on stands and we would play things and stop and patch them and change them and be able to take pauses and go back into control room and listen and decide what we wanted to change what went well what we thought we might do differently and one of the um uh most difficult parts to record uh, was uh, one movement of picture studies where the solo e-flat clarinet played from the organ uh, loft where the console is above the orchestra and miking that and coordinating it uh, was one of the most difficult parts of the process and uh, our former uh, our former second clarinet and e-flat player uh, Boris Alec Verdian did an amazing job on that. And uh, you can hear him on that recording. Stephanie, do
0: you have any uh, recommended recordings this week?
2: Well, let's see. Since I did so well at the pop music um, trivia, I will say I would highly recommend listening to Vanilla Ice's entire discography.
1: <laughs> and
2: I love it. absolutely get back into the Macarena because we are all. Trying to get in some some extra exercise as we are here in in our homes, so definitely get get into the macarena and do some do some movement. I think those are my recommendations this week for sure.
0: Definitely good suggestions. And you know, I was Google searching one hit wonder albums, and there are literally like hundreds of them out there. So you can do a Google search, find your maybe your decade that you grew up. They have best what one hit wonders of the eighties, the nineties, the two thousands. Whenever you grew up, maybe you grew up like Mike did in the 50s, you know, whatever your decade is, you should just find that and find an album of One Hit Wonders. Now, there are no real albums of classical One Hit Wonders. No one's put that together. So if you're sitting there bored at home right now, that might be a good album to put together. I'm sure lots of people would buy it. But there are lots of wedding albums out there. And I don't know what it is about wedding music, but there are a lot of One Hit Wonders in the wedding world. Uh, We mentioned the Albinoni Adagio or the Giazzotto Adagio, if you want to think of it that way. But there's Pachelbel's Canon, there's Jeremiah Clark, Trumpet Voluntary, Trumpet Tune, Purcell. I mean, there's just so many one-hit wonders, and and, uh, you can check those out on probably any wedding album.
2: So thanks for joining us this week. We are excited to be back next time where we're going to discuss the exact opposite of a one-hit wonder and explore what it takes to become a major international soloist. So artists like Madonna, Prince, and Beyonce, they're not the only one-name superstars in town.